Okay, if you turn in your Bible, if you will, First Peter 2, 9. I'm backing up a little bit in order to catch the context of all that we're going through right now. And if you're physically able, will you stand with us together as we read from God's precious Word? First Peter 2, 9 and following. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly, fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, for the Lord's sake, whether as to the king, as supreme, or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair and wearing gold or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Verse 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. That's the word of the living God. You may be seated. Thank you for so much for standing. As we uh, continue to journey through First Peter, we have an outline that we've um, we've been working on and working out that follows the text, uh, and um, we want to continue to look at that and let that be the template that we place over this passage of scripture and the rest of the book, for that matter, to understand it better. 
Um, for those of you who have been with us, help me out here. Uh, when we begin in verse 9 of chapter 2, 9a, the first part of, of, of those, uh, those verses, what was the outline that we started with? Do you remember what it is? Position. It's our position in Christ. This is who we are in Christ. We start there. The Bible starts there. And then in chapter 2, verse 9b and verse 10, what's the next part of the outline? Praise. It's the praise that flows from receiving the truth of our position in Christ. This is why this morning we prayed that we would grow in the comprehension of the depth, the width, the length, and the height, and the depth of the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Because everything that flows from that, every term of surrender that comes after that, is based on the knowledge of that. It's based on receiving what God has done. Now, the next part of our outline in verses 11 and 12, we went from position to praise, and what's the next one? Posture, and that posture is that of surrender. This is a surrender that's called for in light of the fact that the preceding verses are true. This is how you should live. That's the habitual uh, bent of the epistles, is to say, here's what's true. And in light of what's true, here's how you should inevitably live. As a matter of fact, in light of this truth, this is how you're empowered to live. You don't live this way to make this true. You live this way because it is true. Then we go next to, in verses 21 through 24, what? Pattern. And who's the pattern? Jesus Christ. And we made the case that Jesus Christ is like, the, the way that that's put, the language that that's put is that you have the picture of Christ and we have a piece of paper on top of it and God traces out the image of His Son onto our lives so that His witness and testimony are seen through the, those of us who profess to know Him and have been changed by Him. He's the pattern. He's not just the power pattern though too, but we round it out in verse 25 with the next P and that is what? He's the power. He's the power. God never requires anything of the believer that He's not the fulfillment of. The Christian life is not trying to go out and eke out some uh, example of who Jesus Christ is. The Christian life is to die to self. And then in so dying, the very life of Christ is displayed in the life of a believer. And this is where He's seen and known in our testimony. And so, then after we go through and see the terms of surrender, the glue that holds the rest of the book together that we've observed is submission to authority. The terms of surrender are this. Those that are put in authority in our life or the levels of authority that God's put in our life we're to submit to. And that's going to take God because by nature we're rebels. By nature we're rebels. Barabbas! Give us Barabbas! Give us Barabbas! The crowd cries. Who was Barabbas but a murderer and a rebel? He was a rebel who mounted a coup against the Roman government. And in part of his rebellion, people got killed. And so the one who was in total submission was offered up for the one who is in total rebellion, which is a picture of every last one of us. We're rebels to the core. And the Lord said, the way I'm going to kill your flesh in a practical sense is I'm going to call upon you to submit to authority in your life even when you find it difficult and most difficult to do. 
the levels of authority he talks about. In verse 13, it's government. In verse 18, it's employers. In verse 3 and 1, it's wives to husbands. And in verse chapter 5 to uh, verse 5, it's younger to elder. And everywhere in between are the terms of surrender. He's saying, you know what? If you want your life to give testimony to Jesus Christ, His testimony will be seen in your submission. That's what He's saying to us. Let's don't live puny lives. Let's realize that we're called not only to live the gospel and share the gospel, we're called to do everything in between to be Jesus in the environments that we've been called in through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside you and I. Amen. Hallelujah. And so last week, we went through and we finished two weeks going through and seeing what the Lord had to say about the wives submitting to the husbands. By way of review, we talked about the fact that the wife's difficulty, and this difficulty is shared by all wives, not just some, that the wife's difficulty in submitting to her husband goes all the way back to the fall. The Bible says that, you remember, you remember, that Jesus said to them, because you've done this, your desire is going to be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And we teased out the Hebrew words from which that came. And that literally means that your desire will be to occupy his role as leader. That you're going to want to control the home. You're going to want to lord it over him. And this is a challenge for every woman who's ever been born. In varying degrees maybe as far as your walk with Christ. But if you, if you have this challenge, don't let the devil talk you into the fact that you're the only one who has it. Every woman has this challenge. Now, the call for submission, though, is much bigger. Remember, we're just going by way of review. The call to submission is much bigger than just having order in the home. It's not just a matter of the fact that somebody's got to be in charge, that two heads are a monster, that somebody's got to be in charge, and there's got to be order in the home, and so there to be order in the home, there can't be competing authorities. But the transcendent truth is, that every time a woman submits to the authority of her husband, she is given testimony to the gospel. Because Jesus did not regard equality with God as something to be held on to, but humbled himself and became a man. And God the Son, willingly, willingly equal to God in every sense, God the Son, put himself under the authority of God the Father in order to purchase you and I. And every time a wife submits to her husband, she is painting a portrait of Christ. That portrait is so powerful that the gospel can be preached by a submissive wife without her saying a word. And the Bible says that an unrepentant husband can be won by the conduct of a submissive wife without a word. Wow, that's powerful. That's powerful. So then the wife in her submission adorns the gospel. She dresses it up. She shows in front of her children. You know what? We not only profess that God became a man, but we live out the fact that God became a man. That Jesus Christ took on human flesh. Does it make womanhood any less? It doesn't say that the woman is some lesser person. To the contrary. It is a celebration of womanhood. And the Bible says, ladies, as we talked about last week, it is Precious in God's sight. How do you like to know 
that your submission to your husband, God counts that as being precious. Society demeans it. Society perverts it. Society downplays it. Is that not, nothing but the God of this age trying to turn the tide on creative order that only our God is sovereign over? Only our God, the Creator, is sovereign The Christian witness is what is, is at stake, not just order in the home. The Bible says, as the head of man is as the head of a man is Christ, the head of a woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. 1 Corinthians 11.3 Did you hear it? The head of the man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Why? Because of the gospel. Because of the gospel. And we talked about Sarah and her obedience to Abraham and calling him Lord. And Sarah did not do that because she didn't know who she was. Sarah did that because she knew who she was. She was going to be the bearer of the seed through whom the human lineage of Jesus would come. She knew who she was. The submissive wife knows who she is in Christ. That's why we want to grow in our comprehension of what is the width, length, and height, and depth of the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Because the submissive wife realizes that submission doesn't cost her anything because she's full already. We talked about the fact that you cannot deeply love until you know that you're deeply loved. And we receive the love of Christ as our anchor. And we realize who He has created us to be through His Son. That... That is the power through whom submissiveness flows. And now we move on to the man. and Because the Bible moves on to the man. That's not our idea, that's God's idea. And so it says, okay, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. What it means is this. You don't have to be afraid of what society says about that. You don't have to be afraid about what your passions say about that or the God of this age or this world system. Don't be afraid of those things. Don't be afraid of that at all. And the fact is, if you're a woman who fears God, you won't be afraid of those things. And then he moves on to the husbands. Seven, likewise, dwell with them understanding. Spencer, come up here if you will, please. We're going through this series, and Spencer shared something with me that God had shown him in the Scriptures uh, about this and some uh, New Te Old Testament examples of 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 illustrating this truth. And I said, Spencer, wow, that's great. And so I said, prepare, get ready, and uh, and share that with us. And so he's going to do that this morning. So Spencer, share that with us. The Lord will be hard, okay? Um, it's not very big, but uh, I just, there was one day, I think a month ago, Pastor Lindsay had um, preached on, uh, I think it was with the government, submitting to authority when you, um, and he, he mentioned submitting to authority when don't necessarily agree with them or if they're hostile toward you. And so uh, I asked God, uh, I think it was the next day, it was like a Monday, to um, show me an example in Scripture of, of what do you do in a case when you have an authority um, that is hostile toward you or that you don't agree with. And um, it was pretty cool because he told me to go to 1 Samuel 24 through 26. And um, so I went and looked, and it was really cool because it was actually 
three examples in the Old Testament, right next one after the other, um, of how people submitted to authority that was either really bad or was trying to kill them, and how God worked through it in a good way. And um, I guess the first one is um, when Saul was trying to pursue David, um, and you know, I'm sure you've all heard the story already, but for some reason to me it just kind of um, it was different this time. But um, uh, David and his men were hiding in a cave, and Saul um, went to the cave to relieve himself. And um, David was listening to his men. They were saying to go kill him. But he just went and took a corner of his robe with his sword. And uh, after Saul came back out of the cave, David followed him. And, um, and um, just what he said, I guess I, I always knew that he, he said, hey, I've got a piece of your robe. I could have killed you, but I didn't. But just the words that he used, um, he was truly submitting to his authority. And he prostrated himself on the ground and said, so it wasn't just his words. Um, I guess if we ever do go as far as saying that we're submitting to an authority that we don't like, a lot of times I guess we don't actually fall through with our actions, but he was falling through his actions. Saul could have killed him right there. Um, and so as far as he knew, he could have died. But um, because he did what was good in God's sight and he submitted to his authority even though he was trying to kill him, um, God put it, you know, moved Saul's heart to um, spare his life, and um, I guess one of the coolest ones is the one in 25 to me, anyway, um, just uh, when, I guess a while back, David had watched the sheep for this one uh, guy that was pretty rich, um, so that nobody would steal him, and then later he was going back through the area, and he was asking for some food, and um, the guy sent back a messenger and just pretty much insulted David, and uh, said that he didn't want anything to do with him, and so... David was going to go the next morning with his men and just totally wiped the place out. And um, the guy's wife was uh, Abigail. She went and met David before he, he got there and brought some stuff, some presents and things and said, you know, call this off. And uh, what I thought was interesting was instead of trying to come before he got there and say, hey, you know, my husband's a really bad guy and, and I think what you're doing is right. Can I side with you guys and go wipe the place out? She had an option there to, to get out of her situation because it said um, in verse 3 that she was a, a intelligent, beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings, so I don't think that she probably liked her husband. She could have switched sides right there and then they could have wiped it out. Her problems would be solved. She would be with David and uh, everything would be good. But um, it said she was intelligent. She was smart. She did the, the smart thing. She tried to save her household and submit to her authority, even though he was really mean. And um, for all she knew, David could have said, okay, we'll, we'll call it off. He could have left, and she would have been stuck with her mean husband, and everything would have gone on as it always had been. But um, God still um, worked through it, and um, God killed Nabal. I think he was... It was pretty soon after that. It might have been the next day or that day. And um, she ended up being able to go and join sides with David anyway. So um, it was just cool. There were three. And then there was another one about David and Saul, another thing. But it was pretty much the same as the first one. But it was just cool how either there was a really mean husband or a, a king trying to kill you. Uh, and the people decided to do what God would want, even though it meant risking their lives or, or, or other things. Do what was pleasing to God, and God ended up blessing me.
Thank you, Spencer. See, that's an example. It's an illustration right there of two people who did what was a common thing among both of them. There are many common things among both of them. But the common thing among both of them is is that they put their situation in God's hands rather than taking it up in their own. I mean, David could have taken out Saul. He'd already been he'd already been prophesied and he'd already been anointed by Samuel. You're going to be the king, but he refused to take matters into his own own hands. And God even allowed Samuel or Saul to pursue David uh, and go after him. And, and, and he just got crazy. He, he became obsessed with taking David out. And there were times when he could have taken Saul out, but he chose not to because he wasn't going to put his hands on God's anointed. Because David knew something that we need to know. And that is that God's inherent authority is delegated authority or one and the same. And even though this king was, uh, was going berserk, David wouldn't take matters into his own hands. Did he wind up becoming king? Absolutely. Is that not a picture of Jesus? Is that not a picture of the Spirit of Christ within him? Because that's exactly what our Lord did. He didn't take matters into his own hands. He didn't kick the Roman authority off of their throne in Jerusalem when he came the first time. He died on the cross and put judgment of those authorities into the hands of the Father. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was falsely accused, he didn't falsely accuse back. He didn't try to justify or defend himself. He was headed to the cross. And see, when you submit and I submit to authority, because of conscience toward God, God has a cross designed for us so that he can wipe out all of our contentions, all of our power, and we're left with his through the power of the Holy Spirit. And people around us get to see the witness of God's Son. Those are two great New Testament illustrations of that, of that truth. Power comes from being not in authority, but power comes from being under authority. And so we talked about the wife. Now we're looking at the husband, and we see two New Testament illustrations of submission to authority in government, submission from a wife to a husband. And this woman used her intelligence to, in a godly manner, her wisdom in a godly manner, and submitted. Now we look at the wife, and she says, submit to the husband. But now, husbands, let's talk. Let's let the Scriptures talk to us for a moment. Look at three one. It says, Woman, w wives, likewise, be submissive to your own uh, husbands. It says, likewise. Then, it says in verse 7, Husbands, likewise, dwell with understanding, giving honor to the wife. Now listen to this. The likewise does not mean, and I'm not saying this because I'm a male. When that word likewise is used there, now listen carefully. When that word likewise is used there, it does not mean husband, like the wife, is to submit to you, you are to submit to her. That's not what that means. That's not what that means. Now I'm not saying that because I'm a, a male. I don't. I, now just... Take, that, take my word for it. The Bible says likewise. Why does it say likewise? What's it drawing us back to? Here's what it's drawn us back to. It's drawn us back to the fact that he's saying, follow the lead of your shepherd. And your shepherd is Christ. Wife, in order to follow the lead of your shepherd, you submit. Husband, in order to follow the lead of your Shepherd, you dwell with your wife with understanding. That's what it means. Do you see it? You see the differences? It doesn't mean likewise, as the wife is to submit to the husband, the husband is to submit to the wife. What is it saying? 
1 Corinthians 11.3. It says, as the, hus the husband is the head of the wife, I mean, the, 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 the head of the husband is Christ, the head of the wife is the husband, and the head of Christ is God. So it can't mean as the wives submit to the husbands, husbands, you're to submit to the wife. No, it cannot mean that. What it means is it's drawing us back to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. And what it's drawing back to is the pattern. And it's saying, wives, as Jesus submitted to the Father's will in order to purchase his bride, the church, you're to submit to your husbands. Likewise means husbands, as Christ came and dwelt on this earth, you dwell with your wives with understanding. The Bible says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The, the husband dwells with the wife, but he dwells with the wife in an understanding way. It means with empathy. The wives are to submit. The husbands <clears throat> are to dwell with understanding. That word dwell is translated <clears throat> from a Greek word in the New Testament that's only used in this one spot. This is the only place it's used. And this word means dwell with them with intimacy. It means physical intimacy. It means spiritual intimacy. It means soulish intimacy. It means to communicate and get to know and take the um, initiative to know your wife. It means to identify with her weaknesses. It means to affirm that they exist and to identify with them. It means with empathy. It means with understanding. It means to understand this. My wife is going to have a tendency as a result of the fallout of the fall from Genesis 3.16 to want to rule the home. And the enemy is going to come in in ways subtle and not so subtle to challenge her with that and to create a basis of tension in my precious wife. And rather than, rather than seeing that is a battle to wage, it is a struggle to identify with. See, Jesus became a man. He doesn't look from heaven and look at you and listen to you and you pray and go, gee, I just don't understand that. I'm God. I made you guys and this is the way you are and you've messed up and you've sinned, but I just really can't relate to what you're going through. I just can't understand. I can't be sympathetic toward it. I'm God. I got everything. I'm sovereignly in control of everything. I don't worry. I don't fret. There's no furrow on my brow. I'm at peace. I don't understand anything that you guys are going through. When Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, she could never be what Adam now still was. You hear that? When she sinned, before he did. She could never be what he still was. So in order for her to get to a place of restoration, 
he had to become what she now was. Now, that's a picture of the fact that the Bible says that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't born into sinful flesh. He came into the likeness of sinful flesh. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8. So in the likeness of sinful flesh, Jesus became who we are so that He could come down here and redeem us to restore us back to what He made us to be in the very first place. See, Eve could never get back to where Adam was. And Adam, they were separated by then. Eve now is a, is a, uh, is a heir of death. Before Adam ate, Adam's still a righteous man. And Eve can't get back over here. And the only way he's going to get her from here is to go there. That doesn't mean that he sinned in order to redeem her. It's just a picture, a preview of coming attractions where Jesus came down and became a man so he could rescue us from being born into Adam to being born into his spiritual loins. That's what it means to dwell. You dwell. Husband, you stake a claim. This is my home. This is my wife. This is my family. I'm going nowhere. I'm going to serve. I'm going to spend myself. I am being willing to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service of my wife's faith. I am purposed in my heart by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit who lives within me that one day I'll be able to present her by God's grace as a chaste, Precious bride adorned for her spiritual husband. I'm going nowhere. I'm dwelling. I'm going to hash this out. We're going to work it through. Is that not but a picture of Christ and His church? In other words, it's oneness. It's oneness that God's after. Understanding, becoming one. Look at Ephesians 5.31. Look at Ephesians 5.31. Um, go with me over there right quick, like. Ephesians 5.31. Please. Dwell with empathy. Dwell with understanding. Dwell with understanding. It says this. Look at this. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I speak concerning Christ and the church. Let me ask you this. What's the reason? For this reason, what's the reason? I'm asking seriously. I mean, what's the reason? Why, what does it say in that verse that's the reason a man would leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife? What's the reason? So the two may become one. So the two may become one. That's God's design, husbands, for you and I as we lead our wives. To shepherd them, we emulate our example. And our example is Jesus. Because the Bible says that Jesus came to take man who was alienated in enmity with God and take God and reconcile us and bring us together and through Him make us one. And in that, that marriage union, 
That kind of intimacy, that kind of care, that kind of sacrifice is to be testified to. That's why marriage is not going to be necessary in heaven. Sometimes I think about that and I think, man, in heaven I'm not going to be married to Jill. And I know God's going to have to change my mindset about that so it doesn't bother me. But right now, you know, you think about that, it kind of bothers you. For eternity, you know, we're not going to be married anymore. It's going to be weird. But I know he'll, 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 we'll all be so Christ-centered. But the reason marriage won't be necessary in heaven anymore is because the example won't be needed. The testimony won't be needed anymore. The testimony of your marriage is Christ, His bride, and His gospel that was used to purchase her. What a privilege we as husbands have to nurture, care for, tend to, and uh, love our wives. Alright? Look at First Peter chapter, chapter 3 again. Please. Look at First Peter chapter 3. Husbands, dwell, build intimacy with understanding. What's the understanding? That my wife is weak on this point. She's got a propensity to want to leave this home. That's it. Got a propensity to want to leave this, lead the home. But I give honor to her in that position, just like Christ gave unmerited honor to us. As to the weaker vessel, I dwell with her with understanding. As to the weaker vessel, recognizing that we are heirs together of the grace of life. We're heirs together in Christ, but the union between husband and wife is the way through which God gives life. And we're heirs together. I can't do it by myself. You can't do it by yourself either. We're heirs together in the grace of life. This is an agency and the means by which God, the author of life, produces life. And we're heirs together of that grace. We are unmerited favor to have children. And look at the, cur the curious turn here it takes. That your prayers may not be hindered. That your prayers may not be hindered. Now, We've got to go to Hebrews 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Join with me, if you will, and just go over there. The Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. This is so incredibly important, men. Now, men, um, this is spoken to us. Ladies, you just hang on for the ride. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Look at the character and nature of the office of our Lord right now. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Aren't you grateful? The Bible says that Jesus is at the Father's right hand and He ever lives to make intercession for us. The eternal ministry of Jesus Christ is to make intercession for God's elect. Hallelujah for that. I'm so grateful that Two billion years into it, Jesus is not going to get tired and go, I'm done. He ever lives to make intercession for us. But what is required of intercession? What is required of effective 
biblical intercession. It is necessary to effectively intercede for somebody else when you identify and sympathize with their weaknesses. You cannot effectively petition heaven on the behalf of somebody else unless you have empathy for where they are. You can't do it. And so if the husband is going to effectively pray and intercede for the wife, it has to be within the mindset that I identify with her weaknesses because I have them too. And to appreciate the weaknesses that she comes into the marriage with. And petition God on her behalf, using the Word of God, to pray to the Son of God for her in the middle of her challenges and her weaknesses. It is to pray with sympathy. It is to pray with empathy. It is to pray with identification. It is what Jesus did in order to become our high priest. Instead of looking at human flesh and going, wow, what a mess, he took on human flesh and was not a mess, but took on our mess so that we could be clean forever. Isn't it wonderful to know that when Jesus Christ prays for you, and he does, he doesn't do it like, well, God, help bail him out again because he's done it again. Or she's done it again. They, they, you know what? They promised 50 times, I know, to both of us, and we're going to do this again. And they've fallen into the same old pattern. Lord, have compassion and mercy on them. Have compassion and mercy on them. There's a bent here that we're dealing with. We'll patiently put them through it to get them through this. But have mercy on them. And the Father hears His Son. Because when the hands are lifted up, they have nail scars in them. You say, this one's with me. I paid for this one. In full. You can't pray with your wife. You can't pray for your wife. You pray for your wife and say, God, would you change this woman? Things have gotten so aggravating and so hard. Change this woman. That has nothing to do with her benefit and her welfare. That but it has everything to do with your comfort and your benefit. That's a selfish prayer. It is not. It is heard by God, but it won't be heeded by God. By any measure. It says your, your intercession can only be effective when you come as heirs of grace knowing that she's the weaker vessel. The wife is as intelligent and, and many times more intelligent. We can laugh and joke about that, but it's true. Uh, as we are, it has nothing to do with any of that. She is physically weaker than we are. God made her that way. It's her DNA to lose sight of that and to not appreciate that. And not to deal with her with empathy and understanding is to lose sight of and lose the heart of God and certainly render you effective, ineffective for praying for her. You use her strength not to fight against her, but for her. You use your strength not to fight against her or subdue her. Rather, you use your strength to protect her and provide for her. That's what you do. We've got men in this church who are doing that. That we're saying, you know what, we're going to come together, we're going to circle the wagons, and we're going to have marriages that reflect the character and nature of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're going to raise up children, and we're going to disciple those who come from mixed backgrounds, that hopefully one day they'll embrace the Lord of glory, who've changed us, and give us the opportunity to play a part in displaying the gospel of Jesus Christ in our homes, our marriages, our interaction with our community, our church, and beyond. We have a part to play. I'll tell you something right now. We're, fixing, we're getting ready to dive into it after this. 
This is all setting the stage for what God's will is for His church. And God's will for His church is that we have unity. God's will for His church is that we be one. It is a miracle that God could take any bunch of people. It's a miracle that God could take anything of two and over and make one out of them. Regardless of where they come from or who they are. It's a miracle that God could do it. But guess what? That's God's will because He prayed it. That we would become one. That we are unified. We will not, we will not sacrifice the truth for the sake of unity. Because the truth, the unity is predicated upon truth. Without truth, you have no unity. Unity is the fruit of truth. But we come together around the Word of God, celebrating the Son of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, and God will make us one. That's what He wants to make us one. Schisms within His church and divisiveness within His church is not God's plan for His people is to make us one. He's building it up. He's building it up, and it's going from uh, husband to wife, and now it's going to, we're going to encounter now church. That's where we're headed. That's where the text is headed. Wives, I want you to, I want you to see. I, I'm on the focus on the family uh, thingamadidge. You know, they send emails to us or what have you. And the president of Focus on the Family does blog entries all the time, and, you know, they'll periodically send you a blog entry. He sent one. Uh, just this past week, and I, I picked up on it, and I thought, wow, this was written by... This is the spirit of empathy we should have toward our wives. This is a, this is a letter to, to, to wives. I want you to listen to it. It's so good. This is written by Trevor Wax on the, on the blog side of uh, Jim Daly, who's the president of Focus on the Family. Dear Mom, you are a gift of God to your husband and your kids. But you don't always feel that way, do you? There's a low-level feeling of guilt that creeps into your heart from time to time. Sometimes it bubbles over into tears, usually on lonely or difficult days. You scan blogs and read books about being a good mom. You find some helpful tidbits here and there, often from other women who are grandmothers now. Women you can learn from, but have seem to have forgotten the struggle. They seem to have it all together. In your heart, you want to be the kind of mom who trains up kids to make a difference for the kingdom. You know it is an honor to be established, to be entrusted with these kids. And you know you've only got one shot. You want to be the mom who teaches them the Bible, models them how to pray, and trains them up in the fear of the Lord. But most of the time you feel like you're barely holding it all together. Your house cleaning can't keep up with your kids' mess making. The kids embarrass you by acting up right when your guests arrive. Your husband doesn't just get just how worn out you are by the end of the day. You come to the end of your patience, you lose your temper, and then you feel worse. And the last thing you consider yourself to be is a good mom. And you think to yourself, it'll be a miracle if my kids turn out okay. And surprisingly, that's right where God wants to meet you. The place where you admit your powerlessness, and your need for Him. It is only by God's grace that any child grows up to be a force for the kingdom. You see, there are no perfect children and there are no perfect mothers. No matter what you read in blogs or see in magazines or learn in books, there are sinful kids and sinful mom and dads. 
And the only thing greater than both of us is the grace of God. The God who says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The God who loves to forgive, to transform and empower. God loves you, not because you're a good mother, but just because you're his, you're his precious child. God loves you, not because you've mastered all the skills of parenting, but because He has. It's a divine grace that will transform your parenting, not guilt. It's a grace that will keep you from keep you going and serving and scrubbing when you're exhausted and worn out. It's grace that will conquer your feelings of inadequacy and remind you of God's love for you in Christ. It is grace that goes for the heart of your kids, not just their behavior. God has demonstrated the fullness of His love for you through the cross of His Son, even while you are still a sinner. He's promised you His presence. He has spoken His approval over you in Christ. He is the perfect Father who delights in you as a daughter. Find in Him your treasure and joy, and be to others what He is to you. So walk in freedom. Let Him hold you together when everything seems to be falling apart. Bask in His unfailing love for you and rest in His promise of power through the Holy Spirit. Amen? I want you to know something. You're working hard and trying hard. And you love your Lord and you love people in your care. I appreciate Nancy saying this morning that her getting up was a tug from the Holy Spirit to pray for some of the mothers who don't enjoy uh, nights where you pretty much foregone conclusion that you're going to have a good night's rest. Or they're busy and what have you. That's from the Lord that she said that. That's timely. That's the kind of prayers that we as our husbands should have for our wives. And for all our ladies among us. Some of them won't be wives one day. Some of them will. Some of them won't have children and some of them will. All of that's up to God. That's His business. I can tell you this. We need to pray for one another and empathize and sympathize with what others are going through. And in so doing that, remember all too much. Listen, here's, here's the deal. Regardless of what you're called to do and what I've called to do, the outcome is always going to be attributed to the grace of God. We don't need to parent by guilt or parent by fear. We want to be parent by fearing God and celebrating the fact that we are under no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus.